the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. Money is a form of communication, like writing, music and art. It goes back to the origins of human history. And now money is changing fast, in a way that will affect all our lives. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Payments get faster, cheaper and digital. But as some things get easier, others become more complex. Some people are at risk of being excluded from the new world of money, those using cash. There's increasing concern about what happens to our payments data, probably the most valuable digital records of all. In some areas of money, criminals and fraudsters are having the time of their lives. So when using new forms of money, how do we know if we're at risk of being scammed? Where do all these changes leave our traditional money, our dollars, pounds, euros and yen? What's the role of governments and central banks in this new world? And what about the big tech firms like Google, Apple, Facebook and the Chinese tech giants Alipay and WeChat who are moving quickly into money? The New Money Review podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each episode, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it and share it with your friends and network. Your recommendations will help us grow. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Rohan Gray, Assistant Professor of Law at Willamette University in the US. Rohan is also the author of, of a forthcoming book called Digitizing the Dollar, The Battle for the Soul of Public Money in the Age of Cryptocurrency. Since the invention of Bitcoin in 2009, there's been rapidly increasing interest in what we can call non-state money. That definition includes cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but also privately issued digital versions of existing currency. For example, there's Tether, the unregulated digital dollar that's grown from $3 billion to over $60 billion in size in just a year. There's Circle, another so-called stablecoin, which is now growing rapidly and whose issuer went public on the New York Stock Exchange last week. And of course, there's tech giant Facebook, which still plans to issue its new version, digital version of the dollar called DM. Amidst all this private sector experimentation with digital money, what role is left to the state? The dollar, after all, is still the world's reserve currency. So listen in to hear Rohan argue why we shouldn't leave the dollar's fate and that of other digital currencies just in the hands of private actors. This is a crucial debate and one we're going to hear a lot more about in coming years. One housekeeping note before I start the recording, this is the last New Money Review podcast until September. I look forward to rejoining you then. Rohan, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Uh, yeah. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm an assistant professor of law at Willamette University in Oregon, uh, where I focus on uh, money and finance and macroeconomic issues related to law, uh, particularly with a focus on digital currency and digital fiat currency design and regulation. Okay, great. Um, Rohan, I've, I know from reading your uh, profile that you used to work as a professional musician and a school teacher. How did you end up as an academic focusing on money, law and, the, and politics surrounding that? Yeah, I always wanted to go into law eventually. I was really originally interested in education-related issues and, and copyright issues um, related to sort of, you know, intellectual knowledge production. Um, but, uh, you know, the more I got into that work and the more that I had sort of looked at education policy and other things, it became very clear that if you control the budget, you control pretty much everything else. And so, you know, that, that, that uh, approach led me to money and led me to 
this very vibrant conversation about macroeconomics and monetary theory that was going on in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And from there, it just kind of snowballed. But uh, yeah, really kind of all still motivated by the same goals, which is to, you know, help help kids be able to grow up and people be able to participate in society and all that kind of stuff. The money is almost secondary, even though it's my focus. Okay, we've seen a lot of innovation in money during the last decade or two, both in, in, in terms of new digital payments technology and also the emergence of things like cryptocurrency and more recently stable coins. You've been outspoken all the way through on the need to keep money public and not to leave uh, it just in the hands of private sector innovators. Why is that? Um, well, first of all, I think it's just a matter of democratic legitimacy. I mean, we've seen throughout history these key um, infrastructural moments when we hand over control to certain private actors and then we spend decades living in the repercussions of that. And um, this is one of those moments when it comes to the digitization of currency. This is a sort of wild west frontier land grab. And um, I, I hope we don't, you know, sort of end up repeating the same kind of political dynamics of most historical land grabs, which have been pretty skewed towards certain people and pretty pretty unjust um and and at this point uh we're really at a moment where the decisions we make now are going to be setting the stage for the next 30 40 50 years i think and so there aren't many more important issues in monetary theory and macroeconomics right right now than than how we're building this new system i think okay and now one of the fastest growing areas of this is of new digital money um sector are, are stable coins, um, which are, I, I guess we could describe as uh, digital represent, representations of existing fiat currencies like the dollar or the euro or the pound. Most of them are, are dollar denominated. Um, and, and you have a particular concern about the way this market is evolving. Why should we worry about stable coins? Yeah, so I, I don't know if I would call them um, exactly a representation as much as a claim on money or a claim to be redeemable into a form of public money on demand. And in that respect, I think they have a lot more in common with um, bank deposits or other kinds of sort of private monies that, that piggyback off the public monetary system than most people think. You know, it's easy to come up with a different name and then to, to say, well, it must be different. It has a different name. But if you actually kind of dig into what's being promised, the promise of a stable coin is, you know, you give us your money, and we'll give you this IOU, and at some point in the future, if you need to tr cash that IOU out, we will guarantee you can, and in the meantime, it will retain a value roughly equivalent to that IOU. And historically speaking, we did this with banknotes, with sort of physical notes, we did this with deposits, we did this with money market mutual fund shares, and in each situation, the lesson that we learned throughout history was that private actors have an incentive to create more of those instruments than their risk profile can tolerate. And private actors <clears throat> are not structurally positioned to evaluate the systemic risks of their actions in total, in, in, in collectively. So if you allow private actors to create something that walks and talks like public money, but has none of the safeguards and none of the policy sort of oversight that actually comes with public money, the result is recurrent crises and systemic kind of breakdowns where the public has to essentially bail out these actors because the alternative would be that they go under and bring down millions of average people. 
So I always think about that, fa- that famous scene in, you know, Mary Poppins where they go to the bank and he asks for tuppence and suddenly there's a bank run and, you know, everybody is sort of freaking out at the bank, right? It's that dynamic over and over in history. And the hard lesson of banking history is that um, the only way to stop that from hurting average people is to provide public supports. But if you do that, then the, the logical conclusion is this is a public service. This is a part of public monetary infrastructure. And the, the, the sort of balance that we've come up with with banks today is that we treat them as extensions of public investment. We treat them as a sort of franchisee, as my advisors Bob Hockett and Sally Omarova would say. And so when we're looking at stable coins, what I'm trying to bring to the conversation is we shouldn't be starting as though we were all born yesterday. There's a history here. There's a tradition here. Stable coins fit into that tradition. They're not exactly the same as banknotes, but they are in that tradition. And we should be learning those lessons now rather than when it all collapses and, and blows up. Okay. I mean, at this point, uh, I guess a counter argument would be, and I've heard people express this view on, on the podcast in the past, um, that you know, with new forms of money and new private sector stable coins, we're just going back to an era where there were competing private versions of money. And in, in fact, throughout human history, people have chosen to transact in very different kinds of media, using different kinds of media. And therefore, it doesn't really matter if you know, a certain group of people step up and decide to create something. And if it, get, if it takes off, therefore, you know, why not let it just uh, take off and, and grow as, you know, as, as, it, as, it, as it may? And uh, the, the, you know, the, the public sector shouldn't be interfering here and, and stopping these private payment instruments. You know, just let them flourish and see which ones survive. You know, what would you say to that counter-argument? Yeah, so the first thing is it's very important to note that <clears throat> when it comes to stable coins, this isn't sort of trying to go after Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin or anything like that, right? Private currencies that are denominated in their own unit of, of account are fundamentally different. I have no problem with them existing. That doesn't mean I think they're particularly great. There are other reasons why people might have problems with them. But in terms of the sort of monetary stability of the dollar itself or the public currency, they don't pose the same risk as something that is walking and talking like a dollar. The volatility is baked into the exchange rate movements between the private currency and the public currency. In terms of assets that are denominated in the public unit of account, there have been all sorts of private credit instruments throughout history. I can create an IOU right now that's denominated in dollars. Where this becomes a problem is when the instrument is designed to circulate not as a private instrument, not as something that is risky, that has credit risk of me as an individual or the issuer, but something that is designed to give the impression that it is as safe as public money. If you look at the way that Tether, the way that Circle, all these actors talk about it, they say, it's backed by safe assets, it's guaranteed one-to-one, you know, all of these things. In the fine print, they have exceptions and caveats to all of that. But the way it gets marketed and the way it gets used, most importantly, the way the public comes to see it is as equivalent as public money. And if you look at the way that they're set up, they're usually backed by safe assets, or at least supposed to be. If you're a money transmitter, you're supposed to have that, that money in a bank account or in safe liquid treasuries or something. And so it's never actually private. It's always building on the safety of the public system. The only question is, how good are those promises? So what you'll often hear is, well, we're backed one, 100% reserve. So therefore, 
um, there's no risk. Well, there is risk with that. There's operational risk. There's risk of fraud. There's risk that you may have done something wrong with your calculations of what is safe in that basket of assets, etc. And so you're not trying to compete in a private market. You're trying to glom onto the public monetary system in a way that you think is safe, you think is adequate. And I'm saying, I think from a systemic perspective, that's just not true. The the hard lesson is the only way that we've actually managed to keep those assets safe in the really tough periods is a direct guarantee. But if we're going to have a direct guarantee, we need to be talking about this as a public good. Right. So what's what, in your view, is the most appropriate way to regulate these um, stablecoin issues and issuers? Well, the Stable Act, you know, not to sort of pump my own, th- you know, uh, bag a bit, but but yeah. the, ra- the way that we approach the Stable Act. Which you brought before to- Congress in December last year. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It'll be reintroduced later on this year. But the way that we, that we developed that bill was to start by... Uh, looking at um, the the way that deposit law works today. And and, uh, Morgan Ricks, a colleague and friend of mine, law law professor, um, wrote a whole book called The Money Problem about how one of the major causes of instability uh, in the lead up to 2008 and after was that um, various actors that we now call shadow banks uh, were issuing instruments that were effectively deposits. But because of the way that deposit law in the US is structured, there's a sort of loophole, a well-recognized, long-standing loophole that needs to be fixed where the definition of deposit is something that a bank does. Yeah. So if you're, if you're not a bank, by definition, what you're issuing can't be a deposit, even if it walks and talks and is functionally like a deposit. And so this recommendation that Morgan had and, and others have proposed is that we should adopt a, a functional definition rather than a formal definition of deposit, which is to say, if you're promising, if you issue a liability that promises to be guaranteed to redeem in money, you know, in, in is designed to issue, is circulate as a stable value instrument, that is a deposit. And once you have that functional definition, then it becomes very clear that these instruments are deposits and they need to be issued by a licensed chartered bank. So that's the approach that I would say is, I have no problem with payment system innovation. I have no problem with new setup of of the way that the financial architecture is designed. But let's be very clear. These actors are issuing a deposit 2.0. They should be regulated as banks. Those banking regulators should be all over this, not the hodgepodge, barely regulated money transmitter framework that they're currently operating under. Right. So, I mean, you're saying that they should be regulated effectively as banks. And I, because I remember that there was a similar debate after the financial crisis with respect to, um, money market money. mutual funds. And they were, they were, you know, people were, the regulators were saying, well, these, these things are effectively, um, uh, functioning as dollar deposits. And they need to be, the, the, the issuers need to be not regulated necessarily as banks, but they were, they brought in a new transparency regime and also various new liquidity requirements. So you, it's kind of, you, so you're saying it's, heading in the same direction as that, and there should be kind of a single regime for anything that's yeah, I, I think, I think, as a deposit. I think, yeah, I think money market mutual funds should also be regulated as banks. I think the reason yeah. they didn't there was not because it was yeah. a sound decision, but because regulators yeah. were generally crappy after the crisis on a lot of things. And yeah. if you look for the last 10 years, we've been bailing them out consistently, haven't we? Yes, they bailed them out right now. Again, again in 2020, uh, the, the, the onset in, in March. So, uh, so we haven't yeah. solved the problem, right? And the, the, yeah. those actors like stablecoin issuers, had a lot of claims about how safe they were, right? Oh, it's all, yeah. we, we, just trust us, right? We're always safe. And this problem comes up again and again 
which is that the conversation ends up focusing on the asset side. It ends up focusing on, do we have enough collateral? Do we have enough reserves? And in my opinion, it's the wrong focus. The focus should be on the liability. What are you promising? If you can't guarantee that promise under all circumstances, it's not a safe promise. And I have never seen a single theory of collateral that actually is safe. They, they minimize the risk. They push it out to the very long tail. They say, oh, look, it would have to be a black swan event for all of this to go under. And I say, we've had three of them in the last 10 years. Yes, it, it might be a black swan event, but that is exactly the kind of risk we need to be addressing. So and your I, primary I concern is that, is that, is that, is that um, you know, these things are going to grow. Uh, they're already growing like crazy. The stablecoin market has exploded over the last year. Uh, so your concern is that these things, are, you know, at some point, one or more of them are going to get into trouble and then there'll be a, a call on the taxpayer, I guess, in the US, if it's a dollar stablecoin, to, to make people whole. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't use the term taxpayer because I don't think that's where the public money comes from. Yes, but it will be putting a burden on the public fisc. Yeah, it will. Yeah. A, a, there will be a bailout. And, and you saw that not even just with domestic shadow money. You saw that with international shadow money. I mean, the euro dollar market, right? When, when there was a crisis, what happened? The, the, the European and, and other banks went to their central banks needing dollar liquidity. And those central banks went to the Fed needing dollar liquidity. And now we have this system of international swap lines. Yes. precisely to, to backstop the shadow money issued around the world, um, where the US is effectively the, the insurer of last resort for the European banking system, among others. So that kind of, that kind of problem is, is going to keep coming up. And yeah, in terms of sort of them doing shady things, Tether's already done it. Tether's been, been sort of dinged for lying and for using customers' funds to make loans to Bitfinex by the New York Attorney General, um, Circle is just about, it has stopped publishing attestations of its assets over the last few months. Um, they're all opaque. And um, right now, you know, half of them are operating out of, you know, Caribbean islands and this kind of stuff. It's not, it's not a um, transparent, healthy system. Yeah. Um, how, how then do we uh, get to, I mean, that's, that's a, those are the problems, those problems you're describing are within a single currency area, the dollar area. You know, and if you want, then want to extend things to look at, um, achieving a level playing field on a global basis. How do we do that? Because you, you know, you've got an enormous amount of jargon. Things that are functionally similar are called different things in different markets. Uh, there's a whole range of jargon, different terms for effectively the same thing. You know, how do we, how do we um, end up comparing like with like and yeah, and, I mean, uh, in that respect, a proper framework. Yeah, in that respect, I actually like the term stablecoin. You know, I like to joke that maybe in 50 years from now, you know, we'll say that our kids will say, you know, what. What's a, what's a bank deposit? And we'll say that's what we used to call stable coins. You know, in the same yeah. way as most of us don't talk about bank notes anymore, they talk about bank deposits. The, the, the bank note, um, you know, obviously we have Federal Reserve notes and other forms of cash, but in terms of private instruments, they're basically obsolete now. And, and the, the, the concept of a coin, I think, is nice and conceptually simple, right? Deposits, uh, who knows what the hell a deposit is, but a coin, yeah. even a digital one, is very easy to conceptualize. So in my opinion, you know, the fight that we're trying to fight about stable coins is about setting the benchmark for what will become the new normal. Um, and, and, you know, JP Morgan's issuing its own stable coin now and this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, would, I would say let's get it right. And then when the existing forms of shadow money eventually get refracted through the stablecoin lens, which I think a lot of them will, um, we, we will have already got the framework sort of sorted and, and got the right language and vocabulary. But in terms of an international framework, yeah, I mean, I think you need to encourage people around the world to start thinking of 
um, shadow money, you know, as a core kind of framework for, for banking and, and financial regulation in general, and it's going to require harmonization. And we're starting to see that now. Um, the stablecoin crackdown by all the various regulatory agencies over the last few days, um, a sort of concerted effort, it wouldn't take much more than that in the major jurisdictions for um, for actors to say, yeah, we, we're saying these actors are shadow banks, they need to be regulated, and if you're, you know, if you're uh, allowing that activity to occur in your jurisdiction, we're not going to recognize, you know, your banking system the same way. Yes. And how quickly do you think the risks are growing in this sector? You, you mentioned at the beginning of the uh, chat, uh, the, the 2008 crisis. I mean, are we at risk of repeating something uh, similar? Well, I, th- I think Tether is a ticking time bomb. I think the, the, just the level of opacity, the level of shadiness, the, the past track record of the people involved is extremely worrying. And that's, you know, at the center of a lot of the crypto industry, huge amounts of trading in and out of Tether, huge, huge amounts of the rest of the ecosystem depend on Tether. So I think that's immediate time bomb. Um, uh, Circle just announced today that it's going to have a, a SPAC uh, uh, issuance and go public at you know what a valuation of a couple of hundred billion, um, so that's that's growing exponentially. And then of course you have Facebook on the horizon, um, and and given how completely abysmal and embarrassing their initial rollout is, I don't have any faith in in their in them not screwing something up pretty catastrophically along the way. So I, I think there is a major risk. I think. It is going to be less likely you're going to see the the whole scale contagion across the financial system that we saw in 08, mostly because the central banks and others have have adapted, right? Even in 2020, they flooded the financial system with liquidity very early on, and we didn't see that kind of run on across the financial system we saw in 08. Um, So in that respect, um, if this blows up, it may be a more localized blow up than we saw in 08, but it it could still be serious. It could still be very bad, especially given how much of the crypto community is marketing this towards, you know, people with needing remittances or yes. unbanked and things like that. The people who are going to get hurt the most are going to be the suckers in that yeah. ecosystem. Yeah, and there's $62 billion worth of Tether outstanding now compared to only 3 or $4 billion, uh, only 15 months ago. It's grown a huge amount in the last... That's right. And they're printing that money sort of, you know, hand over fist to invest in speculative crypto assets and this kind of stuff. So it's it's got a kind of uh, Ponzi dynamic to it in that respect that um, that means there's no limit on that growth. Um, the only reason it's done is sort of slow down now is because of the recent regulatory action and things. But, you know, if they think if they think that the the regulatory energy is sort of quieten down for a while again we might see these weeks where billions of, of tether are printed you know every day kind of thing and yeah the, the growth trajectory is exponential yes let's talk a bit about the the u.s framework for uh, the development of digital money um and uh, i've you know i've seen it described as a kind of mishmash of federal and state level law that um allow um you know payment firms to to grow and and, and manage themselves often without uh, with a, with a, you know quite quite large opportunities for regulatory arbitrage and choosing um, states to issue digital currency from that allow you you know a lot of leeway in the operations. How big a problem is this for the development of a you know the the, the digital dollar um, or digital dollar to stable coins? Because you know you've got this really quite complex uh, legal framework uh, in the background. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's less of a problem for the affirmative development of the digital dollar, which is going to happen at the federal level, than it is for the regulation of these private alternatives. And, um, you know, you've got these states like Wyoming, where basically these crypto enthusiasts have come in and gotten to rewrite, you know, half a dozen laws, basically, you know, without anyone paying attention in that respect. You know, what happened with Bukele in, in, in El Salvador and Bitcoin is is actually sort of you know, already been happening at the state level in the United States in terms of these sort of, you know, politicians just handing a blank check to the crypto industry to turn their economy into a playground. Um, But the bigger problem is that federal state um, division right now, as my advisor, uh, Dan Ori, Professor at Cornell, has, has sort of documented in detail the money transmitter licensing regime is at the state level. Um, there's very, very little federal regulation of money transmitters. And there's 50 different state regulations, most of which are extremely um, limited. They basically have almost no restrictions on the sort of assets that you can hold or some minimum amount that you have to hold. Uh, some of them require you to pay a few thousand dollars. Some of them you require to put you know, the funds from that state into a certain kind of account or set of assets, but you can do whatever you want with any funds coming from the other states. Um, so, so some people have proposed a kind of national federal money transmitter law that would just supersede all of those state regulations. Um, my view is that the best way to do that is within the banking re- regulation regime um, to, to create a kind of subcategory for narrow banks and to have like lighter requirements in some respects for than, than other banks because they're not engaging in lending but that if you actually look at the history of money transmitter regulations, they were from the outset basically a way for telecom and and, and other companies that weren't traditionally banks to start doing financial services without having to get a full banking license. And the effect over time has been a two-tier system where all the the most risky stuff happens out at the edges of the fintech sector – and the regulators are one step removed from it all. So I don't actually think the kind of two, two-tier division of money transmitters and banking regulation is a good thing. I think it's the product of 100 years of sustained you know, pressure by industry to, to, reduce the, um, to reduce the degree of scrutiny. And banks are kind of fine with it to some degree because they get to play this two-step game with their partner, money transmitter actors where the money transmitters do the most risky stuff. The banks kind of lend them their charter, lend them their balance sheet and, and then get away with, get away with things that the banks wouldn't be able to do in the broad daylight. So to me, at least we definitely need federal harmonization of these regulations, but that a national banking license is a, is a better, a national banking framework is a better way than to, to replicate the money transmitter bank division. Yes, I, I read the recent working paper by Dan Ori, Lev Menand, and James McAndrews on the the shadow payment system in the U.S. And it was quite striking for me, at least. To I found it very striking that the the, the different states' requirements are so um, so diverse, and that I think in twelve out of fifty U.S. states there were no um, no requirements on reserve backing for private digital money at all. So it really is a, a kind of race to the bottom in uh, or potential race to the bottom amongst issuers when, when, when exporting the system. Yeah, and, and, you know, there are two layers, in my opinion, there. One is they, they exploit the 50-state race to the bottom, you know, trade off against each other, that kind of thing. The other thing is, as I was just mentioning, the reason this all exists is precisely to avoid 
that additional scrutiny that comes with banking licenses. So to me, at least that 50 state, you know, hodgepodge, the opacity of it, the fact that it's, you know, got so many holes, it's like Swiss cheese is a, is a feature, not a bug. And so to kind of go to the federal level and say, oh, we just need a strong federal money transmitter license. To me, it's like, you, you know, this regime was designed to be weak. When you hear money transmitter, you hear weaker regulation than banks. If we if we want something that's actually strong and robust, we don't need to concede that much ground before we even start designing that kind of regime. In my opinion, yes. Now, you, the, in, in, you, in the very interesting uh, topics you're talking about, there are a number of public policy questions about the way the money supply is managed, but also there are questions of financial inclusion, there are questions of, of uh, security of payments. Um, are central bankers the, the right people to be overseeing um, the debate on these important public policy questions? Yeah, no, in my opinion. Um, I, I, think that, I think that central bankers, sort of by their own admission for a long time, have been very narrowly focused. Most of the senior leadership are macroeconomists, right? They're not, um, they're not technologists. They're not civil libertarians or privacy experts. They're not you know, people who think about consumer retail financial service provisioning for a daily living. They, they are people who might be got a degree in sort of macroeconomic history, statistical modeling, those kinds of things. And now suddenly they're in a position to make a decision on behalf of humanity, whether or not we get privacy and transactions or not. I think it's nuts. And when you look at the actual kind of competencies of the institution, most of them have for generations very, very loudly and consistently demanded or, or, or assumed that any retail public payments provisioning should be done through private actors, should be done through this public-private partnership. They don't like providing services directly. And so when the time comes to start debating a digital dollar or a central bank digital currency, um, you know, I like to say, you know, you ask bankers what technology can do, they'll say a better bank. Right, but you ask these guys what they think the government should provide, and shock horror—they don't think the government should provide retail payment services. Now, you ask the postal service; they do want to provide services. They've been begging to be able to provide retail payment services. So maybe if you want, you know, if you're a right-wing person who doesn't believe in public infrastructure and you want an answer that is going to mean that this new layer of infrastructure is going to be privatized from day one, you ask the central bankers, not the postal service. Right? And, and similarly, um, when it comes to privacy issues, I've never met a central banker that's willing to stand up to the national security state. So when they talk about things like privacy, right, what they're usually talking about is some financial intermediary should be able to keep their data and not have to give it over to the central bank. Uh, but they don't mean that, that that actor shouldn't have to give that information up to a police officer or to, to the CIA or to the NSA. Right? That kind of politics has to happen, in my opinion, at a political, at a public level, at a level of public pressure. It's not going to happen with these sort of technocratic economists and former bankers uh, who, who are somehow going to become freedom fighters on our behalf. Uh, right, but at the, same, at, the, at the same time, sorry to interrupt you, but the central banks are now under a great deal of pressure to introduce their own digital currencies. And they're, yeah, and, and they're going to say they're going to have to, uh, you know, take a stance on all these issues when it'll be part of the design. So and they're saying that privacy, it shouldn't be anonymous. It can't be anonymous is what they're saying. Yeah. They're not debating yeah. that. They're not saying public should vote on that. They're saying in their opinion, as the people in charge of this process, that's off the table before we even start talking. And I think that's frankly unjustifiable. Yeah. So, so who do you think should be, uh, you know, sitting on the, 
I think elected uh, you know, officials. The top table elected, right? Yeah, I, it should I think be between, officials. Yeah, yeah I, I think yeah. I think if, J, if 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 Chairman Powell testifies to Congress as he did that anonymity in a digital currency is not viable, I think people should say to him that is our decision, and if you tell us you are unable to execute the decision that we make, we will find somebody else. Yeah. So, so um, there's a lot going on um, at the moment in, in all these areas. Over the next year, what are the key um, uh, developments we should be focusing on, both in the US and worldwide, the key initiatives that will tell us how this debate is evolving? Um, I think one of the key questions is uh, whether or not these central banks end up pursuing a, a token-based architecture, an account-based architecture, or some hybrid of both. If it's only an account-based architecture, we've lost the privacy fight before it's even begun. Um, that's that's my view. So that's the first thing. Within that, I think the question of sort of anonymity, genuine anonymity, offline peer-to-peer anonymity is going to be the, the flashpoint. Um, if we lose that, I think we're pretty much lost again. Um, and then the last question will be whether or not we provide these services directly to the public or through private intermediaries. And I think that that's, that's going to sort of differ depending on the country, but that we really need to be thinking about a robust sort of direct provisioning, not something where central banks issue the currency, give it to commercial banks, and the commercial banks give it to us. If we do that, then we might as well not bother. Right. So a whole lot of important things are up, are still being debated and are up for a decision over the next uh, few years. Yeah, the architecture, the, the, the commitment to the privacy as a policy matter, and uh, the the degree to which we rely on intermediated private provisioning of these public goods, I'd say, were some of the big core things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been a, been a very interesting discussion, and it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, Future of Money in Thirty Minutes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com. You can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website in the right column. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.